Faith and Family is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you anytime, anywhere since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. What is domestic violence? What do we need to understand about it? Do we have misconceptions about domestic violence? Do we, uh, is there a stigma surrounding domestic violence? I'm Eddie Bates. You're listening to Faith and Family. Thanks to our friends at Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. Find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org. You'll find Concordia University, Wisconsin in the sponsor section. Joining me by phone this morning, Sandra Ostapowicz. She's a domestic violence uh, survivor and our guest today. Sandra, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you with us, and and thanks for helping us improve awareness regarding domestic violence uh, today and and October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Uh, Share with us, Sandra, why awareness regarding domestic violence is important to you. How does your story begin? Um, Gosh, my story begins many, many years ago. It seems like a lifetime ago, another person almost sometimes, but... um, I was not aware of what was going on with domestic violence. I, it took me um, eight years of being in a, an abusive relationship, an abusive marriage, before I even realized, hey, that's not right. That's actually abusive. Um, and if, if I could be that deceived, not just um, with living in denial, but as what abuse actually was, there's so much more awareness that the rest of the the community, the world, needs to see um, in order to stop it. Do you think you had misconceptions about domestic violence and abuse prior to your own experience? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, that only happens to, you know, the women. You know, lower class, less educated, maybe uh, different ethnic than me. You know, that happens to people or in TV shows and movies. That doesn't happen to educated middle class me. That's not how that works. You know, mm. my husband never really beat. And so, you know, I, I didn't really think anything else was abuse. What were the, the signs that, that there was abuse, perhaps the signs that you missed, uh, didn't see until later. <laughs> um, well, he had a violent background. Uh, he was known for having a temper, getting into bar fights in his younger years and things like that. Um, was not at all uh, ashamed of having the temper that he had, uh, being very tightly wound. Um, signs that I missed, I that I met family members and friends of his and co-workers and things like that would make a point of getting me alone at some point and, and asking me, are you okay? Is he hurting you? <laughs> and that was not a red flag in my mind. Um, everyone else could see the danger except me. What were the things that they saw that, 
that oh, made them just, concerned? He would, he would uh, seize, he would fly off the handle, he would, um, would threaten to get into fights with friends, uh, sometimes would, uh, road rage. Um, just there was a sense about him that was just, he was very, very tightly rounded, waiting for something to happen. Um, it, it wasn't that he was a violent person. He was a very large man, um, 6'5", easily 300 pounds. Um, and so he didn't take much for him to be in a threatening posture to many people. And so people took that seriously. And so did I, uh, except I, I knew where the limits were and I could push things a little further than most people um, before he would react. And... Um, but I knew exactly where those limits were as well. And so, yeah, there was, uh, we would have arguments that were just insane. Uh, there were many thrown objects. I don't know how many remote controls and cordless phones we went through uh, because they were thrown against a brick wall or something like that. Uh, holes in walls, things like that that were just not actually normal. And I dismissed it thinking, oh, he's a country boy and I'm suburban girl. And they just have a different way of handling things in the country and, and in that kind of lifestyle. They're just a lot more hands-on. And they express their anger in different ways than I've seen, you know, being the sheltered waspy girl. And so that's just kind of how I dismissed it in my own mind. So his behavior was behavior you had not been around before. And you just oh, no. you, you brushed it off as uh, this, is, this is a cultural thing this behavior is a cultural thing and i've just not been exposed to it before it's really nothing to be concerned about right you know like when you hear you know two guys have a disagreement they go out and they you know have a fist fight for a few minutes and they come back in and have a drink together you know that's just how things are and you know that wasn't my my world that i grew up in but you know there are people who live that way so i guess that must be all right and i just need to adjust but this wasn't uh, this behavior wasn't just between him and you know other guys that he encounters at the the bar or other guys that he might work with or or someone that he might have a disagreement with outside the home. No, um, I what what really got me and got me uh, I don't want to say got me I keep saying it but what really kept me going in this illusion and, and denial was that my influence was good for him. I was civilizing him. I was making him calmer. Um, I was helping him, you know, be able to hold down a job for a longer period of time and further his career and achieve things in life and, and you know, all of that kind of thing. But I did that by, by becoming the buffer between him and the big bad world. I took the, the heat that he could not express at work or that he, you know, couldn't express with friends or whatever that that was reserved for at home. At what point did you realize that maybe this isn't uh, healthy? Maybe this isn't my, my job, my vocation to, uh, to, well, to be that, that, that filter. Um, I knew things were bad. I knew we didn't have a healthy marriage, 
we were had begun counseling and and that kind of thing to try and you know I was trying to do whatever I could to make things work. And finally, what what opened my eyes to the to the reality of the situation was when he actually tried to kill me one night. And that's when I realized, oh yeah, here's something I can't actually deny and dismiss as you know. This is just how people handle things in a different culture. Um, no, this is actually, you know, abusive and violent and threatening my life. And so I, I need to get away from this. Did you confide in anyone? Did Had you, uh, prior to, to that incident where he, he attempts to take your life, had you confided in anyone else? Had you shared with anyone um, even the slightest concern? Um, not using the abuse word because I didn't think that applied for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, I had talked to my pastor uh, a few times. I'd met with him and we had, like I said, begun marriage counseling with a uh, Lutheran counselor and um, had, were going to begin talking together with my pastor. Uh, he wasn't, my ex-husband wasn't really a churchgoer, but he had agreed to do that. Um, and yeah, I I hadn't really confided about what was going on in the house and the threats that I felt all the time because I thought that was normal. I thought that was just my life. And so I didn't think this is something I need to confide in anyone that, you know, everyone knows how he is. And so what do I need to say? Beyond the the... The well, I, I guess prior to the his attempt to take your life, were there times when you feared for your life, or that you were afraid that that he might harm you? Every morning, um, the way I would, I, I had to wake him up for for work every morning. That was that was my job. Um, I suppose I could have let the alarm get him up, but sometimes he didn't hear the alarm, and it would go for a couple of hours at a time until they automatically stopped turning, you know, beeping anymore, which not only drove me nuts, but also would make him late for work and enough tardies to work and you get fired. And that had happened a couple of times too. And so I took it on myself to be the big, the buffer between him, the bad world and getting up in the morning and I would wake him up and I would start out nice and sweet. You know, Hey, it's time to get up. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a certain time. You have so much time until you have to leave. And I would get his clothes out and have everything. So all he had to do was get out of bed and go in the shower and everything would be laid out for him. And he could, you know, go to work. And we lived in Minnesota at the time. I would even, you know, shovel the driveway, get the car started, you know, clear it all off, all of that kind of thing to, you know, smooth his day out. Except it didn't usually work that he would get up right away like that. Um, it would end up to where I was a little bit more... Uh, insistent, um, maybe even quite frustrated and raising my voice and that kind of thing because, you know, he's only had this job for a few weeks and can't keep showing up late, you know, that kind of thing. And he doesn't seem to care. So I would get upset and he still wouldn't get moving. But I knew that when he finally got up and was chasing me down the hallway, swinging his arms at me to, to hit me, that he was actually up for the day. And that all I had to do was avoid him and he would make his way 
to the shower and get on with everything. But every morning, I would basically have to run <laughs> and avoid being caught, or I would get, I assumed I would get hit. I never actually got caught, but I didn't want to find out either. Did anyone else know that that was happening, or was this something you kept very private? Oh, no one else knew that was happening. Um, that was just the morning routine. And somehow, in my mind, that was acceptable because I wasn't actually being hit. He hadn't hit you, so it wasn't no. abuse. Exactly. In my mind at the time, yeah. Hmm. And, you know, there were other times, you know, if I, in that process, laid out, you know, a pair of socks that had a hole in it that I didn't wasn't aware of, or a shirt was missing a button, or I had somehow shrunk things in the wash. Um, there were times when he would get halfway dressed and realize the problem and have an entire fit and literally hulk out, ripping his clothes off his body, yelling profanities, and you know, then I, there would be a chase to get things um, straightened out and get new clothes picked out and avoiding the you know the turmoil that would be going on in the bedroom and the laundry room to empty out all the drawers and find something that would be acceptable um that was just that was just my day in your mind you had normalized this behavior this was this was perfectly fine or at least it was okay it It, wasn't perfect it it wasn't fine but this you know you gotta do what you gotta do that's what being married is about Yeah. So then you get to the point. You get to the point where he finally does uh, attempt to take your life. Did you see that coming, or was it totally no. unexpected? Unexpected. It was totally out of the blue. Um, I knew things had been tense that day. Um, we had just started going to counseling, and actually had an appointment scheduled for the next day. And um, a friend of mine from high school was being ordained that evening. And so my mom and I had gone to that service and taken taken her son, who was 15 months old at the time along, because my ex-husband could not handle him by himself. He just would not do anything. And so we took him along and um, got back, and things weren't... He'd been stewing, I could tell, because he would have... Almost like he would have arguments in my mind and be really mad at me for things that he thought that I said in the argument that I hadn't even participated in. But he would get himself so wound up and um, got home and checked in. You know, anything happened, anyone called, da da da, and went and put put our son to bed and came back down. And he was raring to go. He was ready to pick a fight. And just a verbal argument at that point. And we had, we had a lot of fights about my faith. Um, he was a Lutheran. He's confirmed Lutheran. Um, but he was not a churchgoer. He was angry at God uh, for uh, taking his father from him. And so I figured, you know, this is something that he'll eventually get over and start going to church again. Because he was pretty dedicated by the sounds of it when he was younger. And so in time, that would probably change. It did not. And my faith became a huge problem in our marriage um, <laughs> to the point that 
it would be an insult for him, or at least he thought it would be an insult to say, you know, oh, I hate talking to you. Every Nobody likes talking to you. Every conversation ends up talking about Jesus. Do you know how boring and frustrating that is to talk to someone and all they talk about is Jesus? And here I'm thinking, this is an insult. <laughs> mm. But those are the kinds of arguments that we would have that my, you know, my faith was disgusting and repulsive. And he would do everything in his power to make sure our son didn't turn out like me and da-da-da-da-da. And that, that night after the ordination, I got home, and he had been having this argument in his mind and came out with a line that, well, you just think I'm some spawn of Satan here to test your faith. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to call you spawn of Satan, but yeah, you test my faith. It, conversations like this test my faith all the time. But he didn't hear, you know, that. He just heard, you know, yes, um, you must be some spawn of Satan. And um, I turned to walk out of the room, and I heard chair. He's in his uh, man cave office playing video games on the computer. And I heard his chair slide, and I knew he was moving. I didn't realize how fast he was moving because he's a big guy. And um, I'd only gotten maybe five, six feet away before he caught me and picked me up over his head by the neck. Like He grabbed me by the neck and held me up over his head. Um, I did not expect anything like that. <laughs> I had never been caught before to, to find out what would happen when I did get caught. Um, I didn't expect things to be that escalated in his mind. And um, I didn't pass out, thankfully. I remember not being able to breathe and the, the blackness kind of coming in to pass out. Thankfully, I did not before he let me down. Um, and as soon as my feet were on the ground, I knew it was just like the veil had been ripped from my eyes. I knew, holy cow, this is, this is abuse. I'm, I'm, I've been abused. And, um, packed up my son, who was not quite asleep yet, and took him over to my parents and found a hotel room for myself and then tried to figure out what in the world had been going on with my life. It finally set in that that yeah. there is something wrong. There's, there's something wrong. There's a word for it. I'm one of those people. How could I have missed this? This how could this be happening to me? Why am I running from my home? It was just completely unbelievable. And of course, at the same time, um, I'm watching the hotel TV and the, um, I forget what it's called, the, the movie about domestic violence with Jennifer Lopez was on. And that, I just sat and bawled through that whole thing. Um, because I, I was just, I, I totally understood. Everything was so raw and so new and surreal for me that that just, that affected me in ways that I totally did not expect. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, I had to go back and realize, you know, no, that's not a normal way to start your day, being chased in fear that you're going to get caught and the tar beat out of you. You know, that's not normal. People don't do that. And to be called the things that have been called and to be told, you know, how worthless and stupid and useless I am. And, you know, things that, that's not right. That's not how people should live. 
um, and that I had been, that's abuse. I was a victim of abuse, and that took, that was a huge um, realization to come to. And the worst part was not even being abused by my ex-husband, was it was the denial that I had lived in for so long that I couldn't, I knew I couldn't trust him, but I couldn't trust myself either because everything that I thought had been true and normal and right and yeah, okay was really not. And I had been lying to myself for years and years and years. So every, everything was upside down and backwards for me. I had to figure out what was what from, you know, the very, very basics. Who am I? What am I doing here? Who, who did you talk to next? Who was the first person? Obviously, you'd, you'd gone to your parents to, to leave your son there. Who, did you, who had you talked to? Was it, was it your parents? Was it someone else? Uh, well, I should have called the police. I did not. Um, I called my pastor and just said, you know, I'm leaving. The things went too far and, and I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I don't know how long, but I'm going to a hotel. And he expressed disappointment and said that he would talk to me the next day. And um, then I talked to a friend of mine who's also a pastor. And he got the brunt of, <laughs> the brunt of my, my wild emotions that night. Um, with many uh, not PG words and tears and you know, ugly crying and all of that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, I did. I did find. Uh, I talked to my pastor and I confided in another pastor. And after you shared with them, when did you begin to share with others, uh, with family or with friends? Um. The word kind of went out with my family that I had left, and nobody really even questioned why. Um, there were questions about the propriety of the decision that I chose to leave um, because nobody in my family had separated or divorced or been abused. I was, you know, charting new territory in my family and our, in our social circle that was just not done. Um, or talked about if it was done. And so, you know, my, my family being faithful Christians wanted to, wanted me to avoid divorce and wanted, wanted me to reconcile. And I did too. I wanted to reconcile. I did not want a divorce, but, um, that had to be my decisions and not from outside pressures. And, um, for someone who's been abused, having those kinds of pressures on on what you do is is really hard to deal with because that's what you've been dealing that's what you've been handling and feeling from the abuser and so you have to sort out what's good pressure what's helpful for you and what's actually not and so that was another thing to deal to how to deal with but to uh, learn about through the whole process and to bring them around about um, and there are family members that I didn't really talk to for quite a long time after that, um, because of the pressure that they had put on me and things like that. What was 
your next step to to starting over to uh, to to moving on to a life uh, outside of abuse or after abuse? Well, I I, I, I love to research. I'm a reader, um, and so I, I went to the public library and I found a book. I, I started reading up on abuse, and I found a book. Um, called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men by uh, a man named Lundy Bancroft. And Mr. Bancroft, or it could be Dr. Bancroft, I haven't looked recently. Um, he, what he does is he runs programs for male abusers to teach them to not be abusive. And so he wrote a book on how to understand abusers. Um, and I read that. And I, even though I didn't have, you know, any money, all my credit cards were frozen and all that kind of thing, um, I, I scrounged, scrounged up the, the change to buy that book because I had to make notes in it because that was my life. It was, it was so enlightening to read that and realize that there's a pattern to this. There's, there's uh, certain kinds of personality traits and common um, ways of behaving that I could finally begin to predict what my ex-husband was going to be doing. But one of the helpful things was that it also laid out some steps to try and reconcile and to try and, you know, keep the relationship together. Things that you should, that are reasonable to expect to see change in an abuser and, you know, how to make those decisions. And um, I knew that I was not in a mental state to make any decision about divorce or reconciliation, uh, either one. I needed to stay in a neutral, kind of away from the abuse and healing myself before I could come back to try and reconcile the relationship. I got that information from that book, which made a lot of sense. October is... October is Domestic uh, Violence Awareness Month. We're talking with Sandra Ostapowicz, a survivor of domestic violence. We need to take a quick break. When we come back from that break, we'll continue to hear Sandra's story and learn more about domestic violence, what we can do to prevent it, and how to help someone who might be experiencing it. You're listening to Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. 
Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson with an invitation for you to join us for an enjoyable Christmas lights tour aboard a Mid-American bus. Friday, December 15th, historic Perry County churches that'll be viewed include Hill of Peace, Saxony Lutheran Memorial, Concordia Frona, Trinity Lutheran in Altenburg, where you will hear the Perry County Lutheran Chorale. Emmanuel in Altenburg, and a wonderful dinner at Mary Jane's in Perryville. Call me at 314-996-1520. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Our guest today, Sandra Ostapowicz, she's a survivor of domestic violence and and an advocate as well for those who have experienced domestic violence and helping uh, by sharing her story today and, and providing some insights for us as well. Sandra, before we went to break, we were sharing your story, how uh, we had just gotten to the point where you had realized that this really was abuse, this was violence, as your your husband, uh, then husband, had attempted to take your life. You had escaped, you and your son had escaped safely, but now coming to the realization that uh, much of what you have had been living uh, were were deceptions. You had had you know convinced yourself that it wasn't a problem until that moment, and now learning, uh, taking the steps to educate yourself on abuse, domestic violence, what it is, and and now uh, you shared that uh, you were seeking to reconcile. How did that go? Your your attempts to <laughs> seek reconciliation. Um. Well, it it went well, I suppose, for a few months. Um, I made a list of ISIL's demands that needed to be met before I would consider moving back home. Um, I I went ahead and rented an apartment with my brother and signed a lease that uh, would limit my ability to return home on the spur of a moment or in a moment of weakness or something like that. but I, you know, basically laid out, you know, he needs to get into a program for abusers. He needs to take care of his health. He needs to stay in a job uh, for, you know, three months. You know, things that you know, are terribly unreasonable. Um, and in the meantime, I would get into a program for victims of abuse and deal with that, go to counseling, um, meet with our pastor. He met with our pastor. We met separately with our pastor. We met together with my pastor. Um and went through all these steps, and he was going to the program and, and doing all that kind of stuff and was getting really religious and going to church and trying to have, you know, theological conversations with me because I'm a big, you know, theological nerd. And um, and my pastor, you know, he, he said, you know, he's really making an effort here. When are you going to go home? And it had been like a month since he had, you know, strangled me. And I had to you know, tell my pastor and explain to him, this isn't me just being difficult. This is real. And if I don't see these things and see it in a long-term way, if I go home, you're going to be doing my funeral soon. Um, Because instinctively I knew what I've, you know, just been reading recently, that strangulation, attempts of strangulation and strangulation are precursors to women being killed by their abusive intimate partners. Um, And so I I had to put the brakes on my pastor 
and actually kind of defy him, which was really hard for me to do because I wanted to do what my pastor wanted me to do. Um, but I knew I couldn't. And I knew that I just knew that the repentance and the changes that we were seeing were only for the short term to get what he wanted. And that was to get me back home and to resume our life of, you know, our relationship the way it was. And so after about three months, all of that petered out. And I started hearing rumors from friends about, you know, he was going out and dating other women and the things that he was doing, the things that he was saying about me and making things more difficult, um, you know, things like that. It, the, the abuse, I wasn't living with it, but it was still going on from a distance. And after about nine months of being separated and trying to reconcile, um, he had a uh, habit. He had found a new tool to use in the arsenal of abuse, which was to threaten to divorce me because he knew I did not want to be divorced. So he would threaten that he had filed for divorce, that he was going to file for divorce on Monday, and that was that. And it would never happen. And this happened, oh, probably four or five times in those nine months. And after the, you know, fifth time or so, I just decided I'm done. This, I'm not, this, I'm taking this toy, this tool away from you. You are not going to abuse me with this threat anymore because I'm filing for divorce. You clearly don't want to reconcile. And this is not going to happen. There's too much water that's passed under this bridge. We are already divorced in, in our minds and in our relationship with one another it's time to make it legal to protect me and, and our son. And so that's when the divorce process began. And I do not recommend divorce. I don't think anybody who has been through a divorce would recommend a divorce for anybody. Um, even in an abusive situation, if you can avoid it, if you can get things straightened out and reconcile, try it. <laughs> because going through an abuse, uh, an abusive divorce is really, really um, challenging. Things just get crazy. Um, it is not an easy process. It took two years to finally get the papers signed and everything done. Um, and two years of hell, of having to go back uh, in front of mediators and psychologists and judges to relive and tell tell what was going on in the relationship and hope that they would believe you and hope that, you know, things would go and you wouldn't get, you know, your kid taken away, which has happened to a friend of mine. Her daughters were taken away by her abuser. Um, the judge believes him over her, you know, and, and hoping that these things aren't going to happen. And it, it's not, it's not good. So if you can avoid divorce, please do. But we did end up getting divorced and that was, uh, in 2005. Earlier, yeah. earlier you'd mentioned, yeah. we talked about the, there's a, a stigma about, particularly about women who have uh, experienced abuse. You, your, you know, misconceptions that it's a particular group of women that uh, either a certain level of education or lack of education or, or um, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, those types of things. How... And then even when you mentioned that that night when you were, uh, you know, fleeing, uh, escaping 
um, fleeing to, to save your own life and your son's life, you said, I'm one of those women. Yeah. Why is there such a stigma surrounding abuse? Um, well, because nobody wants to talk about it, for one thing. Um, people who have been abused or who are being abused need to stay silent about it to survive. That's how you have, victims have to live in that denial. So they don't want to talk about it. And other people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to think about these things that are going on undoubtedly around them. Statistically, one out of four women have been abused or have been in abusive relationships. I'm not just talking a one-off thing, but in relationships that were abusive. Um, That means multiple people that we know and encounter, um, even know well, have been victims of abuse. And if you don't know who those people are in your life, it's only because they haven't told you. But they're there. They're sitting next to you in your pews at church. They're having coffee with you. They're maybe even eating at your table with your family. They're there. We're there. And it's just not something we talk about because um, a lot of times people question whether what we went through was abuse. You know, were you, were you beat up? Because people jump to physical abuse as the defining, you know, that, that, that's real abuse. That other stuff is just made up. And it's, you know, it's only when it's battery and assault and the woman is, you know, black-eyed, you know, all that kind of stuff. That we identify as abuse. But these other things, those fall into a much grayer area in the minds, I don't want to say of the uninitiated, but of people who just aren't as aware of what actually living with that is like. Um, Actually, physical abuse, many survivors would say that's actually preferable because bruises heal and, you know, bones, broken bones heal, all of that heals. It's the emotional and psychological stuff that stays with you for the rest of your life. You mentioned you mentioned that the you know the there are people in our daily lives we're we're sitting in the pews with them we encounter them in our daily lives coffee or whatever it may be what are the the signs of which we should be aware that someone may be experiencing abuse oh gosh yeah um, that is something that I have developed a spidey sense about since I realized what goes on there um, oftentimes. Uh, someone who is currently being abused will be very anxious and uh, walk on eggshells when it comes to being around their abuser or talking about their abuser. They're very cautious about um, when they have to get home, where they are, um, making sure that they're not doing something wrong. They're usually very apologetic Um because that's just how they have to live. Um, or they can be just a regular person who just handles things and covering things up really well. But there are the way that they talk about their significant other, um, whether it be someone that they're dating or married to, because it happens in both types of relationships, um, if they sound like they're afraid of that person, if there is a tinge of fear when they talk about that person or around that person, 
you know, get get that friend of yours alone somewhere safely. Uh, not like, oh, come talk to me right now. We're going to talk about your significant other while they're standing over there. Because um, then that's not going to happen. But when you have an appropriate private conversation with them, ask, ask them, are you okay? Are you safe? I was just kind of picking up on something. Is, is everything all right? Because they not actually confide in you at that point. But until they see that you are someone that can be trusted with that information and that it's safe, they're in a safe situation to talk about it, um, because victims can't talk about the abuse that the abuser's there, or it might, it might get back to them, because then there will be repercussions. Um, but if you're in a safe situation, you're a safe person, they may confide in you, and you may be able to help them um, get out not get, get out of the relationship, get out of the situation um, to be safe. By simply asking one or two simple questions and by listening is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Just ask. I, I, I don't know of anyone who would be offended if they were not being abused to have that question asked of them. Because maybe they're having an argument that day. Maybe things are stressful that day. That doesn't necessarily mean that things are abusive, but you're picking up on something and you're asking. And if it is an abusive situation, it's an opening for that person to talk about the situation and to, to get help. What can we do if a, a friend or a loved one does share something that indicates there, there's likely abuse? Uh, involved professionals. Um, dealing with abusive relationships is not something that your average psychologist, therapist, counselor is trained to do. Uh, pastors really are lacking in training to deal with this issue as well, sadly. Um, the LCMS, I served on um, a task force for our church to uh, bring awareness about domestic violence to pastors and other church workers. And there are inf- there's information on the website about that. Um, so there is some training available for pastors and church workers, but the situation right now is that things are <laughs> woefully inadequate. Um, they are not not prepared. So you need specialists who are trained and experienced in dealing with abusive relationships involved. And you can, as a friend, help your abused friend get to those resources um, to get counseling and legal advice and things like that from people specializing in abuse. Not anger management, not um, abuse recovery, but active abuse situations. Usually women's shelters or domestic violence shelters or specific programs for domestic violence, programs that have um, setups for abusers as well are a a notch above, in my mind, than those that only help the victim, which are good and necessary, but those that also help the abuser show that they're looking at it in a more more holistic kind of way. Um, And not necessarily even religious, not necessarily even Christian. Now, I know a lot of people want to have a Christian counselor, but um, the training that is required to deal with abusive situations is just not usually there, and um, that is the priority. You can sort out the spiritual things with your own minister um, apart from those sessions, but you really need someone who specializes in that. And it's not 
getting out of that situation. It's not something you can do by yourself. And as a an outside observer, as a friend of someone who's being abused, you can't make them leave. You can't make them see. Um, being an abusive relationship is a lot like having an addiction. And that person who is being abused has to be the one to see the reality of their situation and has to be the one to say, this is enough. I This is this ends now and to make those changes you can't make them do that unfortunately and that's really frustrating from the outside I think this might be the appropriate time also to share the National Domestic Violence Hotline of 1-800-799-7233 we'll include that with our uh, we'll post with the post of today's audio archive of Faith and Family as well how one in going back to your story, you, you mm-hmm. were you, you tried to reconcile. You realized that uh, there were signs of change, but there wasn't uh, enough evidence to prove that it was going to be permanent change. And it, it, it ultimately, uh, the relationship had to end. It ended in divorce. What then? Did you do from there in terms of your own life, and then? It, perhaps any resolve, any resolutions to to others as well who might be experiencing uh, domestic violence? Um, I started talking about it because I realized that if it could happen to me, to someone like me who is, you know, educated, middle class, pretty outspoken when it comes to certain issues, um, in our church and in our communities, it can happen to anybody, anybody. And so it needs to be brought out into the light. Um, there's, you know, there's a meme and then bumper stickers and things that say violence breeds in silence. And the more that we stay quiet about it, the more it happens, the more it just continues to thrive. But when we shine the light of, yeah day and the gospel on it, um, we can actually deal with things and people can actually be comforted and healed from, from these experiences. And that's what we need to do. And as long as I'm able to speak about it and help other people, um, he didn't win. It didn't affect me so much that I have to continue to live in fear. I can, this, (laughs) like the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis, that, you know, Joseph went through all those trials and being sold into slavery and all that kind of thing. Um, And he finally, uh, after the work being Pharaoh's second-hand man and all that kind of thing, um, his brothers come back. And he tells them, well, you meant this, you meant what you did for evil, but God, God meant it for good so that, so that so many other people would be helped and saved through what has come about from your actions. And so not that God meant for me to be abused, but he used that situation so that I can use my experiences to help other people. And I have. And that has been such a gift for me to be able to take something that was so horrific in my life and to turn it around to help and to save other people from their relationships. 
um, it, it's been, it, it, I, I can't even put words to what an honor it is to be able to do that. Um, and so that's why I talk about it, because people need to know. People need help. Uh, people need the resources. People need the awareness. And I can't not. How Knowing can, what I know now, yeah. How can the church be of help uh, to survivors? How, or uh, uh, might better say, be said, how can the church help victims and survivors? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we... Uh, be love and uh, be loving and, and, and witnesses to victims and survivors. Um, pastors can talk about it in sermons and in Bible studies, not having an entire sermon on, you know, domestic violence, but you know, when things come up about family relationships or when we're talking about the commandment not to murder or to harm another person, and you're going through the list of things. We easily talk about abortion very frequently. It is, comes up in sermons. But this needs to come up as well. Because when pastors bring it up in, in sermons and in other ways, people realize that it's something that they can talk about. And that they can bring up as well. Um, and to help victims of abuse, those little <laughs> signs in the bathroom that um, have number, phone numbers to, like, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, um, things like that, pamphlets. If you have a pamphlet, you know, wall or whatever at your church, including things about domestic violence in there, just having a, a community speaker out. Or once a year, a couple times a year, whenever, supporting your local women's shelter or something like that, making it clear that you are a church that is aware of this issue and wants to be involved in helping people. Because when you do that, people will come to you and tell you that it's going on. You mentioned earlier that in in your case, as you, you escaped, the next step for you was to educate yourself, to, to study, to research, and to learn more. And, and that's where you found a book and other resources what what resources might you point us to today um, to help uh, women and and uh, even men too who need to relieve who need to leave a relationship or have left uh, an abusive relationship and and need to start over? Um, the book that I, I mentioned before, um, "Why Does He Do That Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men" by Lundy Bancroft, is an amazing resource. Um, even if you're not being abused and you want to help people who are abused and understand the, the, the dynamics of an abusive relationship is an essential resource. Um, we also have on the LCMS website, on the um, social issues page, we have all sorts of uh, resources that the domestic violence task force put together, including, um, let's see, we have flyers for the bathroom. We have training, like multiple hour training for pastors and church workers that's available. We have a Bible study for victims of sexual abuse. We have um, a prayer booklet that I actually wrote that doesn't have my name on it um, for people who are dealing with abuse in their lives um, with domestic violence and going through 
the process of realization all the way through healing and starting over and the kind of experiences and emotions that are prevalent and common through that. Um, we have a statement that we worked on with the CTCR about domestic violence and and how um, how to deal with that in the church. There's tons of resources on that page that we are I'm so proud to have been a part of. Um, and then you have your secular resources with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, see the triumph.org is a favorite website of mine for survivors of abuse. Um, it it is kind of an empowering motivational um, kind of source resource for when you're feeling down and you need to pick me up to say, I survived this. I, I'm actually, this is a good thing. I, I've moved past this and um, I'm a better person for it. It's that kind of resources. There's tons of information out if you just Google domestic violence resources. But I really, am, I, I can't say enough good things about the, the, the things that um, the task force has put together. We'll provide a link to those resources as well with the archive of today's program. My guest today, Sandra Ostapowicz, she's a survivor of domestic violence and an advocate and has also served on the LCMS Domestic Violence and Child Abuse Task Force. Sandra, thank you so much for being my guest today, helping us uh, take a look at this very important issue and uh, providing your story for us as well. Thank you for talking about it. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word with Pastor Whedon on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO. You've been listening to Faith and Family, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Faith and Family is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you anytime, anywhere since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift.